0: Hey everybody, it's good to see you. Happy Easter to you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors of the summit and it feels very uh, odd to wish you a happy Easter uh, in this particular context, um, but I hope you're having a good Easter uh, as much as possible given the current circumstances. Last week, uh, I began by challenging you to think about uh, the power of being somebody who's a good question asker and having an exploratory spirit. Uh, I wanna continue in, lo- in that line of thinking, but flipping the idea a little bit on its head. And I want you to think about the power of you being asked the right question, the power of when somebody asks you that perfect question that leads you on the journey of uh, self-discovery, self-awareness, recognizing what's really going on inside of your heart and how you consequently need to be changed um, as a result. Uh, maybe you have a friend in your life who's really good at doing this for you. Maybe you have a counselor, like really good counselors are really good at asking questions like this. When, when these people flex these abilities, it's almost like they have a superpower. It's almost like Superman's x-ray vision where you can finally be like, oh, that's what's really going on uh, inside of my heart. Maybe you've uh, felt the pressure to do this for somebody else. For example, uh, for those of you who are parents, a lot of times you have to do this where you have to discipline yourself. Your kid makes maybe not the best decision and you try to discipline yourself to not yet, and to not just tell, but to ask, right? Like, sweetheart, can you just help me understand um, how did you come to a place to believe that it was a good decision that the toilet bowl would be the perfect pretend swimming pool for your action figures? Just help me help me understand your line of reasoning. Now, it's not lost on me, for many of you who are sitting at home right now, you were thinking to yourself, I wish I had somebody like this. I wish I had a friend or a counselor to ask me uh, questions like this. And if you were there with that longing, uh, let me give you some good news uh, this Easter Sunday, that that longing is satisfied in Jesus. Jesus was and is the most amazing asker of the perfect question. Jesus was amazing at telling people to do things. Jesus was amazing at heralding truth. But Jesus was also amazing at asking the perfect question in the perfect moment to lead somebody in the journey of self-discovery and be forever changed as a consequence. And now nowhere is that more uh, clearly on display at the very first Easter. We're going to see Jesus encounter this woman named Mary. Mary is walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Uh, Mary is at the peak of sorrow. And Jesus asked her not just a question, he actually asked her two questions that leads her on a journey of recognizing not only does hope come from sorrow, but hope has a name. Hope is a person, and his name is Jesus. I want to show you, before we dive in, these two questions that Jesus asked. I'm taking this straight from verse 15 of what we just read. And Jesus not only asked these questions in the midst of Mary's tragedy of the first Easter, uh, Jesus asked these questions of us uh, 2,000 years later in the midst of our own cultural crisis and tragedies as well. Here are the two questions I want you to be thinking about today. One, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? If you're not feeling sad in the midst of the current cultural crisis, your heart is not reflecting the reality of your experience. And what we have to do, what Jesus is pushing us to do is not just to feel vaguely sad um, and not just to numb ourselves so we don't feel sad and not just to feel uh, generally angsty, but to do the soul work of being able to name, this is what's going on in my heart and this is why I feel sorrow right now. So uh, why are you weeping? Question two, who are you seeking? Jesus knows that sadness leads to seeking. Sadness leads to seeking. As C.S. Lewis famously said, pain is God's megaphone to arouse a deaf world. This is why stories of life change, whether they're changed for the better, uh, change for the worse, a lot of times are set in the context of moments of tragedy sorrow leads us to seeking and what Jesus is helping us uh, do is be thoughtful about that seeking we're not meant to just seek we're not meant to just seek and grab a hold of anything that offers just the slightest hint of hope again like Jesus does for Mary Jesus is doing for us today as our sorrow leads us to seeking we are meant to both seek and to find that hope comes from sorrow when we recognize that hope has a name and hope is a person and his name is Jesus that Jesus alone can satisfy our seeking in the midst of our pain. So what I felt was appropriate to do is in the midst of a very non-traditional Easter, we should go back to the very first Easter and we should see how hope comes from sorrow centering around us, asking and answering these two fundamental questions that Jesus brings. Now, first, what I want to do is I want to give you some context of these two questions. Look with me at uh, verse 11 that we just had read for us. Verse 11, it says this, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. So we're seeing that the central figure uh, in this story is a woman uh, named Mary. So there's Jesus and this woman named Mary. Mary. Now, if you go back into verse one of this chapter, what you actually find is this woman is Mary Magdalene. And I want to give you uh, three crucial contextual pieces about her life that'll give us some uh, background. Information that lets us make more sense of the questions that Jesus is asking her. One, uh, Mary's salvation. We're told in Luke 8.2 that Jesus delivered Mary not just from physical sickness, but spiritual uh, possession and oppression as well, that she was actually demonically uh, possessed. Jesus saved Mary. Two, Mary's devotion. Mary was a woman who grasped that Jesus doesn't just want to save us, but to transform us, to give us the gift of an entirely radically new way of living. What's amazing about Mary's life is she was not just an eyewitness of the resurrection, she was also an eyewitness of the crucifixion. She was uniquely faithful in the midst of Jesus' even closest friends and followers of the disciples, running as quickly as possible in the other way. So she was a woman who modeled a stunning devotion and faith and sacrifice. Third is Mary's testimony, and consequently, historical reliability. It's very popular to have this critique of Christianity, and it's really been there for hundreds, thousands, thousands of years that Jesus did not actually rise from the dead, but actually what happened was there was this conspiracy where his first followers were kind of like, hey, we should get together and we should conspire to trick people into believing that Jesus was this miraculous wonder worker and uh, he died, but he resurrected from the grave, and that'll trick people into believing. There's a lot of problems with that critique of Christianity, but the most explicit we actually see in this text is that the uh, eyewitness, the first eyewitness, of the resurrection according to the scriptures is this woman named Mary. Now what's interesting about first century culture is the patriarchal nature of it was such that it viewed women as being so fundamentally unreliable, they were actually not permitted to give testimony in a court of law. The point being is if you're in the first century and you were trying to invent a miracle, if you were trying to uh, create a conspiracy, the worst thing you can do is make the first eyewitness of the central thing that gives uh, truth to what you are trying to will into existence. um, The one thing you do not do is have the testimony built upon a person who is not permitted to give testimony in a court of law. You would be the worst conspiracy creator ever. Very simply, the reason this story is told the way it is, the most logical explanation is because it really happened in real history. Jesus really did conquer death and resurrect from the grave and Mary was there to see it and report it as a consequence. This leads us to two, the questions are raised. So Mary is the tomb of Jesus, this Jesus who has changed everything about Mary's life. He's been crucified and buried and now she's there and she's lamenting the tragedy of the past week. Think something similar to if you've lost a friend or a family member, the way you would go to their grave and pay respects and continue to mourn that particular tragedy. And what happens as she's there, she hears a voice and she turns around and she sees a man and she's not exactly sure who this man is, but who it actually is, is the risen Lord Jesus engaging her in conversation. Verse 14 says, having said this, Mary turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, so here are those two questions we already referenced, woman, one, why are you weeping? Two, whom are you seeking? Now let's delve into these questions uh, in a deeper way, and not only think about the way that Mary answered these, but the way that we are supposed to answer these today, given the current cultural tragedy we are walking through. One, why are you weeping? Now, what's interesting is Mary's not just shedding, you know, an occasional tear, not just a single tear gently trickling down her face. She is weeping. She is wailing. One scholar says about the word that's used to describe what Mary is doing here is that what she is demonstrating is an anguished, crying, or wailing. Not a quiet, restrained shedding of tears, but the noisy lamentation typical of the people of that day. And what's beautiful about Mary is Mary's emotions are reflecting her reality. She not only experienced tragedy, but she felt tragedy, and she expressed tragedy. Here she is, having come to pay her respects to her friend who has died, who has changed everything about her life, And she not only has to mourn this tragedy that he's been murdered, but on top of this, she has come to a place where she's led to believe that his body has been stolen by his enemies and is being defiled, which is precisely why she responds with, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. There's even a couple observations about Mary in light of this question of why are you weeping? One, we see an incredible window into Mary's devotion. I mean, it's amazing even what she's saying here. Like, give me his corpse, I will take him away. Tell me where he is. I mean, for me, I get queasy at like the blood that comes out of a paper cut. Here is this woman who is so devoted, so loves Jesus. Even after she believes he's dead, three days removed, she's like, hey, where's the corpse? I wanna make sure it's buried properly and honorably. Give it to me, I'll take it, I'll take it. That's how much I love him. But secondly, again, we're seeing a window into Mary's heart. Like we already said, she encounters tragedy, and her emotions reflect the reality of what she's experiencing. But on top of this, it cultivates a deeper intimacy with Jesus. I've been really challenged by thinking about that. I knew I would be teaching this for a few weeks been really challenged by the example of Mary, to encounter tragedy, to feel tragedy, to express tragedy emotionally, and how that rhythm uh, cultivated within her deeper intimacy with Jesus. I think if I'm honest, um, I have felt a lot of pressure in the midst of the, the, the tragedies we've been walking through. And we all have. I understand that for many of you, you might be like, oh, well, I know people have it worse. Like in the midst of a global pandemic, Everybody is collateral damage. Nobody is an exception. And I think a lot of us feel the pressure to kind of put a bow on this and be like, here's why it's not that bad. And I think it's good to be hopeful. And I think it's good to be thankful. Um, But at the same time, I think it's important in line with not just the legacy of Mary, but also the legacy of Jesus, that when we encounter tragedy, we feel the tragedy and we express the tragedy emotionally. And I think for a few weeks, I felt the pressure to kind of be like, it's okay, it's going to be okay. Here's all the good things that are going to come from this. And I think God's going to create gold from this. I really do believe that. But I feel like last week, because of the influence of Mary on my life, I had a breakthrough where I got done recording this service, did my my once a week, leaving the house, recorded the service, uh, was on my way to King Supers to go get groceries. And I just drove in the car and I cried. And it was like the very first time I gave myself real permission to be like, this is really awful. It's really awful. Um, I do not like recording a service in an empty room where my closest friend's uh, presence is not felt. Uh, I miss seeing kids run around and having the time of their lives before and after our services. I miss hugging people and uh, laying hands on people for prayer. I miss going down Larimer Street and having our neighborhood uh, alive with creativity and community. Um, I, don't, I don't like seeing my favorite shops and restaurants and coffee shops um, close and fighting for their survival. I, I hate my kids asking me if we can walk to their favorite places to grab ice cream or a cookie in the neighborhood, and me having to tell them, no, it's closed, and no, I don't know when it's going to be open again. And um, it was like finally I gave myself permission to actually feel that, and um, I just, I just cried. Like I have no idea what the person sitting next to me at the stoplight thought about this guy alone, bearded, just crying alone in his car. But hey, these are weird times, and I don't really care. Uh, I don't care what he thought. I, I was, I was finally align with the heart of Mary that reflects the heart of Jesus, that reflects the heart of God. So I just want to start by, as you're walking through tragedy in some way, why are you weeping? Are you weeping? Are you sad? Have you, give, have you given yourself permission to feel the weight of the tragedy of what we're experiencing? And have you been willing to do some of the soul-level introspective work to not just feel sad vaguely, but to start naming uh, why you feel so sad? The second question he asks is, who are you seeking? Again, I want to remind you that Jesus knows that suffering leads us to seeking. And it's crucial, again, for us to understand that we're not just meant to vaguely have a moment of cultural seeking, we're meant to have a moment of cultural and personal finding as well. Not just seeking, but finding. Again, of finding that hope has a name and his name is Jesus, of finding, of being awakened, of recognizing that all these areas of culture that we place salvific uh, expectations upon are not bad, but they have failed to meet that expectation that for many of us, we have lived our lives believing we are so evolved and we are so enlightened that through our combination of technological, medicinal, and um, creative prowess, we are able to will paradise into existence. And here we are collectively, culturally, globally experiencing the bankruptcy of that worldview. Here we are at home on Easter Sunday. Here we are told by our government that if we leave, we have to have a mask on. Those sentences I just said, it sounds like something out of a history book when polio or the plague was an issue. It does not sound like the year 2020. In fact, for many of us, I think much of our weeping comes from the despair that we are not nearly as advanced and powerful as we thought. That is meant to lead us to seeking That is meant to lead us to finding. That is meant to lead us to a place of recognizing that Christ alone, in Christ alone, our hope is found. And that's the point three, questions answered. That's what's so beautiful about the first Easter is Jesus is not just asking these soul level questions, but he is answering them. And he is saying the sorrow that leads to seeking finds its solution in him. And at the first Easter, we see three particular reasons why Jesus alone satisfies this search that we are on. One, Jesus' unique kindness. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus is so kind here. He could have revealed himself to Mary in a million different ways, and he, cho- he, tried, he, he, he chooses this Gentle, kind, almost playful way of speaking her name in such a way in such a personal way that she boom immediately knows that it's him. It's like God is not only powerful but he is kind, and he sees us and knows us and loves us personally and individually and calls us by name. two, Jesus' unique power do not miss the central point of the good news of the first Easter that Jesus died and he got back up again. Jesus conquered death. Jesus is alive and changing lives today. Jesus conquered death. Jesus conquered the greatest enemy that plagues humanity, that issue of death. Even, beloved, I want you to take a step back and think critically about the cultural issue and crisis of the day. The coronavirus is terrible. I will never diminish the terribleness of what it is that we're going through right now. But I want you to think critically about, let's say for example, uh, Easter morning, all of a sudden good news springs that there's been this breakthrough and uh, everything is solved and we can start going about uh, life as normal. Everybody's fixed, nobody's gonna die of this anymore. Here's, Here's the problem, that would be amazing. Praise God if that happens. But here's the issue, even if that does happen, is that the real issue still remains. The issue of death still remains. And we as people, we have advanced to a place where we can prolong the time before we die. We have not fixed the problem of death. One person in the history of the world has taken on death and resurrected victorious. His name is Jesus. And by grace through faith, not only is his victory his, but his victory is ours as well. Whoever is Jesus. He, as a good king, gives to his citizens the full rights and privileges of life in the kingdom. And one of the many beautiful, tangible implications of that reality is Jesus gives those who are his victory over the grave. Three, Jesus' unique presence. The scene actually ends in what would seem like a very unusual fashion. Uh, Mary quite naturally runs to hug this friend who has changed her life, and Jesus says this in verse 17. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. I can uh, somewhat relate to this scene. Uh, I am working from home like many of you. I work from my basement, and my uh, wife is very graciously parenting our three kids on the floor above us, that's where the kitchen is, and um, I will have to uh, come from the basement and go upstairs to grab a snack or to grab a drink or grab lunch or something like that, and every single time without fail what happens is uh, only two of my three kids can, can run to me right now, my third is basically just a, a newborn, but um, my, my two daughters will run to me and they will declare, dad's done with work, dad's done with work, dad's done with work, and they will cling to me. They will literally grab a hold of me and um, I have to give them the very bad news of dad is not done with work. It is 9.35 in the morning. Um, I'm only like a half hour into my day and I'm just getting the second cup of coffee. That's what's going on and then I leave. Now, this is what differentiates me from Jesus. There's a lot of things, but this is one of the many, many things that differentiates me from Jesus is that when I leave the room, I leave the room. When I leave the room, my presence is not there anymore. When Jesus leaves the room, he gives the gift of his presence in the midst of his absence. That's the point that he's making when he says, I'm ascending to the Father. The work of Jesus from this moment is he not only ascends to God the Father, God the Son ascends to God the Father and sends God the Spirit. And one of the promises of Jesus is quite mind-blowingly What's actually better than Jesus physically beside us is the presence of Jesus who indwells us in the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. That Jesus leaves, but he sends a helper who indwells us. God is with us. God is with us because of the first Easter, even as we are scattered all throughout our city. And for me, beloved, For me, that is my great assurance. Because of the work of Jesus, our relationship with God is fundamentally changed. That's what Jesus is saying when he's saying, not just my father, but your father, not just my God and your God, and that God is with us. With the ascension comes the gift of the outpouring of God, the Holy Spirit, is while we can't be with you, and that grieves us to the core of our soul, God is with you. God is with you. God is with you. And consequently, what I want to encourage you to do is before you just jump on to the next thing, maybe even right now in this moment after we sing, take five or ten minutes to work through those two questions and not just to work through them and think about them, but to invite the God who is with us to prompt us, to indwell us, to move within our mind and body and spirit and soul to help us wrestle with and answer the questions of what's really going on inside of us. Why are you weeping? who are you seeking? And I particularly want to challenge those of you who this crisis has led to asking the deep questions of life for the very first time in your life, um, to ask God to show himself to you, to just put yourself out there. and Maybe it makes you feel uncomfortable, but it's okay. I really believe in faith that God will meet you. God, are you there? God, what do you want me to know about you? God, I want to believe in you. I want to follow you. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. If you need help in that, I again want to encourage you to text that number that we referenced at the beginning, that Shekinah referenced at the beginning uh, of our service. Um, We want you to text that. We would love to have somebody reach out to you and to talk with you and answer questions for you. But I really, uh, in faith, believe that for many of you who have been not only weeping, but seeking, that seeking will find its resolution in Jesus. And you will recognize the good news that was declared at the first Easter and every single Easter since then. That hope can come from sorrow, and that hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. We love you, let me pray for you. Father, we love you, and we're thankful for the work of the first Easter. We're thankful that in the midst of tragedy came hope. in the midst of death came resurrection. And we as a culture and we need resurrection as well. So God, we pray for an outpouring of your kindness, an outpouring of your favor, an outpouring of your love. I pray for the people who are sitting in their homes or in their workplaces, or wherever they might be right now, to feel tangibly the presence of the living God, that Jesus did not just die, but he's alive, and consequently he's changing lives today. And God, I particularly want to pray for people who need to make the decision this Easter Sunday to believe and follow and receive Jesus for the very first time in their life. I know it might feel weird or awkward to um, wrestle with questions like that in isolation or apart from actually being in a gathered church community, but God, while we can't be as uh, leaders and pastors with people, you're with people. And so we entrust to you the shepherding and the transformation of people's, people's souls um, as we can't be with them. We love you, Jesus. and We're thankful for your work. And we ask these things in your powerful name. Amen.